Welcome to Become an Idol. I'm Dr. Robin Sargent, owner of Idol Courses. This is the place where newbies come to learn and veterans share their knowledge. I have here with me today, Ron Nakamoto. And I found Ron when I was just looking in the instructional design job board on Facebook, and I saw him really answering questions about government work for instructional designers in a very knowledgeable way. And turns out like Ron is one of the most experienced people I've found in this field to come and talk to us about working as an instructional systems designer and what that means and the types of jobs that are out there and how to find them and even some new jargon and language for us to understand. So Ron, would you please do a better job of like introducing yourself and and what it is that you currently do? Sure. Thanks, Robin, for having me on. Yeah. So as I mentioned, I've been working in this field for a while. My background is actually, I have 24 years in the military and when I was in the military, they actually helped me get into this program. I started out uh, with the Coast Guard at, in the training environment. I was located at Campus U, North Carolina at Special Missions Training Center. There, I started off as an instructor. So that was my first introduction into the academy atmosphere, uh, our, our formal learning environment. And then the, from there, I, you know, I continued on with my career, but the, the Coast Guard has a program where they actually will send you back to, for your degree in different areas. And, and for me, I was really hooked onto training or instructional material. And so I applied for a program and I was sent to Florida State University to get my master's in instructional systems. And, and then from there, you know, we have a payback toward the idea behind that is to use your degree and experience that you gained. And so I was actually sent back to Special Missions Training Center as the deputy director of training, where I was overseeing uh, about 280 people for that training, it was considered high risk because of the threats of, of injury or death due to the training we were doing. But part of that was overseeing the Instructional Development Center, which we had a mixture of contract and government instructional designers or for what we usually call them ISS, instructional system specialists. The, when you, you looked at different jobs in the federal government, they use series or, or job codes. And so for, for this area, it's instructional system specialist, 1750, it's a series number. And so we had those folks there, contractors and government employees. And so I worked on that and then I retired and was looking for where I would fit in. And I got offered a job and took it uh, with the U.S. Immigration Services as their deputy director academy, where it kind of continued my career in overseeing academies and, and the training and the instructional system specialists. And then the Coast Guard called me back. I was offered a job back at the training center that I left as a civilian. And then, as I'm sure everybody has been experiencing, COVID hit. And, you know, some priorities changed in my life and focus, you know, after 24 years in the military and being focused on work, I started to kind of get work-life balance. And so I applied for a position with uh, TSA at their academy, which is located in Glencoe, Georgia. And I got picked up for that position. And I'm, I'm here now. I'm one of the what we call section chiefs and overseeing project management for the academy training center. So part of my job, though, is to work hands-on with the curriculum management section uh, that oversees most of the instructional system specialists and the development of the coursework. And I would say probably about half my team are typically working on projects and the development of course material. But most of my folks are more instructors versus instructional system specialists. That's with curriculum management. So, you know, one of the things that 
made me kind of start to get a little more involved answering some of those questions. And to actually uh, kind of write that little mini article was I have been helping to reach out to different people who has degrees. One, to post jobs, to get really great quality applicants to apply for some of the jobs that we were posting. But for really to make sure that uh, people understand the process. Applying for the government jobs is, is like no other. It's not like applying for any type of corporate position or even a lot of contract position. It is a different animal in itself. It's a kind of, it can be a lengthy process, but there's a lot of rewards at the end if you know if you're willing to you know, tough that out and can go through that process. But there were some key things that I think as I interview people or run different boards, I'm finding that a lot of our folks just didn't understand the system, the process. And they were really short cutting themselves and was resulted in them not really getting selected or at least being pushed up there as one of the top candidates. I want to unpack all of this, Ron. But first of all, I think what people want a little bit of clarity on, well, I just imagine is, okay, so you are creating curriculum for you know, government organizations and specifically, you know, you've worked for the Coast Guard and then you said something about the you gave a very official title for immigration. Correct me. What is it? Correct. U.S. Immigration Services. U.S. Immigration Services. Right. But I bet they're wondering in corporate, we think of things like onboarding and soft skills and them being able to do whatever work that they're doing in that company. So what is it? What's the type of curriculum projects that you work on when you work for the government? What does that look like? How is that different? So, you know, you'll, you'll see a mixture of, of things. I, I, I will tell you that a lot of the different government agencies are still trying to understand what we are and what we do. They just know they want ISSs, right? I, I've had different employees who gone on to do greater things and they get to their new job and says, they just don't understand what we do. And we have to explain to them in the process so they can see how we can benefit them even more, more than they thought. And I, I will tell you that You'll find based on what office you, you apply for, or what agency you apply for, there can be a mixture of different things. So if you're at a, a formal academy, you'll probably see the development of, in typical situations, there's, there's user analysis typically done already for you, whether it's a job task analysis or something like that. There's, there's already an analysis not done, and you're taking that, that analysis and you're developing that material. And that could be for two ways that it could be creating from scratch. It could be looking at current courses, maybe doing a training analysis to determine what all the different training aspects are out there and what can be streamlined or what's duplication or, you know, how they, they, they flow together. So for, if you're at academy, specifically as an ISS, I'm structural system specialist, you're going to do a lot more of developing courses, instructor guides, student guides, curriculum. You're, you're going to be focused on that stuff. I know for the Coast Guard, we also had a separate section that focused on analysis where they didn't really develop curriculum. They All they did was travel throughout the Coast Guard and they went from, to do, and some of the stuff was done virtually, but they would ultimately do the analysis as requested by an operation program manager or something like that. It would come into as a request and then we would assign analysis team to that and they would develop in, in that process. And then that analysis, like I said, would go to the pro- program manager to make some hard decisions, right? Because everything comes with a cost. <laughs> and, you know, the program manager had to decide, did I want to invest my resources towards what the recommendations and analysis were? And, and, you know, one thing I'll tell everybody, just like you see in anywhere you go, whether corporate or government, your recommendations aren't going to be always accepted. And so you'll sometimes have to adjust to, to meet the, the needs of the client or, or better yet, 
they don't want the, they don't want the analysis, right? I mean, that's analysis is timely and can be costly. I think one of the biggest things you'll see the government sometimes is they, they they want it now. Probably not to say government, I think anybody they want it now, and they're not always willing to wait. And so I would tell you that from the school at the academy now that we're at, what we tend to do is. Maybe we can't do the full analysis, but we find a way to get analysis in so that we have something to be based off of. So, you know, it, it's funny is that when I went to get my master's degree, I wondered how often I would use this material. And, and I would tell you that a lot of the ISS positions, at least my experience is you will use the full gambit of your degree in some form or matter um, with it. So when do people actually go to the academies in the military? Like, is it after they've, they go through basic and then they take a test and like now they are qualified to do something like be a gun specialist, which might not even be a thing. And then they go to a specific academy for sniping or whatever. I mean, I'm such a civilian. But how does this work? So, so I, I call it academy because that's typically what people mostly understand. But it's actually a training center. So when entering the military, there's different ways you would enter the military. One, if you would be enlisted or basic training. I did that in 1995 myself. And then another way is you become an officer. And there's different ways to become an officer. One is you, you like myself, you're, you're enlisted, went to boot camp, and then you apply to become an officer. And then you go to officer candidate school. There's also the academy. So officer candidate school is 17 weeks long. It's actually in New London, Connecticut, at the Coast Guard Academy. And, but then there's actually the regular Coast Guard Academy. It's like a four-year degree program. A little more tougher than regular four degree because the military academy, but then there's people that will go that route to join the military. So you have usually boot camp is from listed, and then you have officer candidate school or U.S. Coast Guard Academy or Army Academy, West Point, Annapolis Naval Academy. You know they all have those different options, and then that's typically how you enter the service. Now, when I was talking about academy, kind of referring to my my the thing is. For the Coast Guard, they have training centers that focuses on different things. So for the Coast Guard, we have the training center in Yorktown in Yorktown, Virginia. That's it's focusing more on schools for you for those specific type of jobs. Like you said, you know, there's weapon specialists we might call gunners mate. They would have a school for those folks to get trained on that job. We have one in Petaluma in California, Elizabeth City, North Carolina, Cape May, New Jersey is our, actually where our boot camp is at. And then for myself, I was at Special Missions Training Center in Camp Lejeune, and what that training center focused on was the tactical boat driving, tactical operations, and expeditionary forces. Those are the folks deploying overseas to fight the wars for the Coast Guard. People will be surprised, but yes, we, we deploy with overseas and, and, and then participate in every war there is. And then we also oversaw the dive program for the, for the Coast Guard. Okay, so when you're talking about these training centers and the curriculum and the ISSs that get hired, are they usually hired for these training centers or do they get hired in these other places like the officer candidate school? And is it is it just across the board? It's across the board. You, you'll have, when it was the Coast Guard, you have at every training center is an ISS. There's, there's a group all, all there. And every academy, as the Coast Guard Academy, they actually have, same type of folks there that kind of develop their curriculum, more of a college level, you know, just like being at a college. And then you have, so, you know, everybody has like a headquarter type unit, right? Whether it's TSA or Coast Guard, everybody has a headquarters unit. And in that even with most of those federal agencies at their headquarters unit, they have ISSs, instructional system specialists at there, because they're maybe looking and focusing on a higher level type of training or analysis. Okay. 
Okay. And so, and now usually we think, all right, you don't need to be an expert in what you're designing training for because you get subject matter experts. Is that the same kind of thing here or do they prefer military, like former military or people already who've been through it to be ISSs? No, I I think, you know, there's an advantage for both, to be honest with you, Robin. I mean, there's the reality is there's a very limited people who have that kind of background or degree that can do both. I mean, one of the advantages I had for myself was, you know, I I was fully qualified in most of those jobs, uh, either um, either doing it myself or as a command leadership over one of those type of units. So I, I had done all those different type of operations. And so when I got my degree, for me, it was really easy for me to understand the lingo, the understanding, you know, what made sense. But the reality is the majority of the ISSs we get do not have that background. And I would say like for my my last job with Coast Guard, we had more contractors than government employees. And those none of those contractors had a background in it. And so it, it's, it's very common to get ISSs with no background at all. Uh, at my current position, I will say there is only probably less than 20% actually has TSA background. All the rest are from outside of TSA. And TSA stands for? Uh, Transportation Security Administration. That's uh, the the folks you see at the airport. Oh, okay. So I thought, but you you never know. It's like, is that the same acronym I think it is? (laughs) Yep. Okay. Thanks for, okay. So that makes sense. Okay, so you're saying like, yeah, you still get a subject matter expert. You can come. Now, what about on the other thing that I see a lot of, and I really want to get into the application process because I think that's going to be really valuable. But the other thing I see is what about security clearances? That seems to be, I mean, from an outsider's perspective, that seems to be kind of a barrier or is it not as much as I perceive? It can be. I will tell you that when you're applying for some positions that have our security clearance, you could be applying, you could be the top candidate, but if you don't have a clearance, sometimes that can push you further down the road because maybe somebody's a pretty competitive against you, but they have a top secret clearance and that position requires a top secret, then you know they, they could easily go, hey, I need somebody right away. I'll take somebody with that top secret clearance. I will tell you that, again, if this position is unique. So ISS, Instructional Systems Specialist, is consider a professional series with, with the government. And so you, know, you do have to have a degree with a certain percentage of classes in this type of background. And it's going to be tougher to find folks with security clearance in this field. And then not all those jobs require that. You might, you maybe you just need to have a clearance. You know, you got to be cleared to, to like a criminal background check or something like that. So that's not as tough as a full clearance. And and so, yes, it, it, it can be a little nerve-wracking with that. I will tell you that uh, in most cases, if you're selected, you'll go through that clearance or background check process. Unfortunately, that's one of the biggest things that takes the longest to do. And that's what typically holds up you actually reporting to your job because they can't let you come on board until you have that background check done. And so that's why sometimes the process takes so long. And is there, what if somebody's, I almost said like gung-ho book, but maybe that's not the right thing, but they're just like, they're into, they want to be an ISS. They don't have a security clearance. Is there a way for them to get it before they apply? Or is it only something that you get if you are hired? Only something you get if you're hired. If you get a clearance, uh, there's there's typically a federal government agency either has it has an organization with a security organization within its agency that will conduct background checks. And so if it's you know it's based on what the clearance is, it could be a five year or ten, ten year background check. So they go back five or ten years back to your history where you lived, 
who you associated with, the criminal background, financial background, things like that to make sure that you're clear to work. So unfortunately, it, it is something that they will not typically start until you get the final job offer because it is a very costly program to, to actually get you a background check. I mean, once you get that background check, that is itself, having that clearance itself will open up doors for you within the federal government, or even with contracting that a lot of people don't even imagine. But it, it is a very costly thing to actually government to actually get a background check on you. Oh, so if, for example, and I'm, we're going to get into the process, but for example, if people want to go through the process and apply and they see that it requires a certain security clearance, could they apply anyway? And then maybe if they're selected? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, definitely. It, it, it shouldn't restrict anybody from applying. It's just telling you that you're going to have to have that clearance. I mean, each person will have to kind of be truthful to themselves if they have uh, a background that has maybe some you know, criminal charges or things like that. You've you, you got to be just, it, it'll, it'll ask those questions and just you have to know is you're not going to hide it. <laughs> just be upfront about it. And if it doesn't qualify you because of some maybe a criminal background or uh, something like that, you, you just you just got to be truthful because typically clearance process would find out and that's not going to be good for a typical person applying for it. But if, if, it, if it says it requires a clearance, it's just telling you that, hey, you're going to have to go through this process and, and you need to be truthful with the questions you put in your application. So even besides just a criminal background check, is there also like drug hair follicle checks and things like that? So, so typically every federal job has a drug test. And that's typically one of the processes is the, that besides the clearance is that you'll know, typically, if you've been selected, they'll make arrangements for you to go to a lab to give a drug test. Okay. Okay. So, but that's not necessarily part of the clearance. The clearance is more about your criminal background or not, right? Correct. They're, they're, they're gonna, they're, the, the whole idea behind of a, a background check is to look at do you have a criminal background? Do you have anything in your record that could be used to coerce you or go against you to blackmail you against the federal government, right? And so it's going to talk about where you lived the last five to seven years or 10 years. And then it's going to know who, who, who knows you in that location that they can call and interview. And they'll actually talk to those people. Uh, have you ever been overseas? And if you have, what was the reason for it? And, and was there a contact for that? So they can kind of look at your, your full background just, just to see if there's any known association to any agency that might be a threat to the country. Okay, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And I bet, you know, a lot of people don't even apply, Ron, just because they think, oh, I don't have XYZ clearance. I can't even apply to this job. So already I think you have opened a lot of doors for people. All right. So first of all, where do they find these jobs? And then we'll get into the process. Okay. So all federal jobs are through usajobs.com. So it doesn't matter what federal agency you're looking at applying for, the actual site is there. And so even if you look at monster.com, LinkedIn, you sometimes will see jobs posted there, but you'll typically find all those links will take you back to USA Jobs to apply for it. So, you know, uh, any person can go to USA Jobs and create an account, set up the different functions to search or even be notified about different positions. But USA Jobs is the only place that you can apply for these jobs. Now, what typically happens is that all the different government agencies, once you, USA Jobs is your starting point. And then when you go to officially apply for that position, it will actually transfer all your information to that government agency site where you'll actually do the application. But you can't get to those sites but through USA Jobs. What about the contract positions that you talk a lot about, Ron? Does, do those also come through USA Jobs or are they other companies that contract with 
the government. And then you have to go and apply directly with those, like basically, I don't know, outside businesses. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, that's not the easy one. So yeah, for all contract position, it's typically the contract company that's doing the solicitation. So what typically happens for contract positions, and I'll, I actually oversaw a couple of contract companies is to the government side. And so what happens is a company will be looking to bid for a contract. And so you might see companies soliciting for people, let's say this job's ISSs, they'll solicit for ISSs. They'll start collecting resumes before they even get the contract. What they're doing is trying to build up their pool of applicants for positions because once the government awards a contract, that company has a very limited time to get people hired and on site because they don't get start getting paid until people report to the duty. And so what typically happens, a lot of companies will start to solicit for applicants. And you might say, you might have five companies that's bidding for a contract and all five companies are soliciting for the same job. doesn't mean they have it yet. They're just looking for that their candidate pool to, to, to put it together. And then once that contract company is awarded, then they'll obviously start to fill those positions. So I would tell you that uh, if you find one contract position that's open, I would do a Google search and you'll probably find other companies that might be bidding for that. Go ahead and apply for all of them because they'll give you the opportunity that whoever wins that contract, they have your name. Now, saying that, once a company gets a contract, again, they, they get paid by having a person fill in that position. And so as people leave or let go for any reason, they, they have to fill that position. So just you'll you'll still see people soliciting for folks there to, to kind of get those positions filled. But it, it's it, unfortunately, it's a separate process. There's some sites that you can look up for uh, government contract positions that you can go to. And, and a lot of these contract companies We'll use that site to kind of, you know, to solicit, you know, to include monster.com because they got to get out and advertise their own stuff. But that is separate from USA Jobs. Okay. That was a pretty hot tip. I was <laughs> right. And so, and so there's a, even kind of a way where you can work backwards when you start seeing one company posi- like advertising a position for a government contract job, then you can probably find other companies. And now you can put in your application with all these different companies. And what's good, what I understand from what you're saying is not only are you putting yourself in their candidate pool for that role, but I imagine they probably store those applications for upcoming projects and upcoming candidate pools that they need. They sure do. I mean, I had one contract company that they had let some, a few folks go. And when they had to the pool, they started going down the list of all the applicants they had from the previously. They just went through there, through that that list and, until they found someone that can fill that, that position. So it's very common for them to do that. And I know that we've talked a lot about instructional systems specialists. If you get hired directly through the government, are there upward mobility? Can you become like ISS number two or ISS number three or however that works? Sure. So so there there is a there's a pay scale within the federal government and, and it's sometimes confusing because they have a general services, which is GS, which the Office of Personnel Management has a set pay scale. So you can be a GS for, for ISSs. I will tell you, they go from anywhere from a, a GS 10, probably to a GS 14, sometimes 15. So those are different levels you can be at. And then for the TSA, TSA has its own pay scale and use a band system. And so they can be like, let's say H band, I band, J band. So it's it's kind of equivalent to the, the GS side. They're all equivalent, but you'll typically see different agencies offers different levels based off what it is. So 
you might have like the Coast Guard. We had a lot of GS-11 positions, but then the supervisors were GS-12, right? So they're one level up. And for the TSA, we have what we call I-bands at our our academy. And, and so all of our instructional systems, that, uh, systems people are H slash I. That means they might get hired as H and then make, they, can, they can work their way up at I because that, that's a promotable section because they have H, H slash I. Based off your experience, they might bring you straight in as an I band because of your experience. And then for us, the section chief, the person overseeing those folks are, is a J band or GS-14 equivalent. And so, you know, you have those steps that you can take. Other agencies that might have different levels based off what they find is the most competitive. Oh, fascinating. And do you have any clue off the top of your head at the time of this recording, like kind of the range of pay for full-time ISSs? Yeah, so it's going to say it can kind of fluctuate, but it's challenging. But one of the challenges is that you're paid just based on where you're at, too. And so, like, for example, somebody in Glencoe, Georgia, is not going to get the same pay as somebody in D.C. D.C. is going to be higher because of the higher cost of living. So there's your basic pay and then there's a cost of living adjustment based off where you're at. So let's say you're in Glencoe, Georgia, you're going to go, based off your experience, you can go anywhere from 78000 to 130000 Yeah, well, that actually tracks about what corporate pays. So... That's about, yeah, that's yeah. A, that's about the same, the same range. Okay. So let's get into it, Ron. Let's talk about, all right. So we know that if we want to apply for jobs, we go to USA Jobs, we work directly with the U.S. government. And what does that process look like? So when you go to USA Jobs, like I said, the first thing you want to do is set up an account. And because what happens is when you're applying for different federal jobs, sometimes they allow you to upload your resume and sometimes they require you to create your resume in USA Jobs. I know for the Coast Guard, they require you to create your resume in USA Jobs. Other job places I've applied, I could just upload my application. So the first part is obviously getting that account and starting to build that account up. You know, the resume is going to be a very, very big part of that. Um, I think you can have up to five resume types at one time stored. And then the next thing you're going to want to look at doing is getting the appropriate documents that you need to apply for jobs. And that can be your transcripts for college. I would tell you that almost every ISS position requires some type of degree, bachelor's or master's and a certain college level. I would say get your transcripts. You can upload those. If you have a cover sheet, I would definitely use cover sheets and get those uploaded and then look at anything else that might be applicable to your background, uh, whether you were prior military, you know, you would not need to have certain specific military items to get credit to that and uploaded. There's a lot of, there's one program a lot of people don't realize that, but if you're a spouse of a military, you know, because the military makes you transfer every three to four years based on what your job is, spouses actually get a little bit of a priority because the government say, hey, you're moving with your husband or spouse or wife because we're making you move. And so they're trying to get the spouses a little, little bit of a, a leg up trying to get them, uh, help them out with employment. So you would get a copy of your husband or, or wife's orders and upload that to kind of show that you just transferred there. And so, so you really want to look at the documents that are required and start building that into that USA job account and having that stuff ready. And then the biggest, next biggest thing is applying for jobs. So when you're, I'm sorry, searching for jobs. Now, when you're searching for jobs, you do have to keep in mind that it can be by just terminology, instructional systems. But I will tell you that on the Office of Personnel Management, OPM website, you can Google that very easily. You can look up series. 
And so you're going to want to look up series and then look at the training. There's different training series that are out there. 1750 is ISS. That's an instructional system specialist. That's, that's that series number is 1750. But you also have things like 1712. 1712 is a training specialist or an instructor. It goes by different terms, but 1712 is one another one. And then you have generality ones. Like, for example, I'm a program analyst and manager, and that's 0343. And so that's a very broad series and can be used for different things. So you kind of want to do your research and kind of find out what you would fall into. And I covered some of that in the article that I posted, but you really want to kind of research that because you can search by that series. You can put all those series numbers or names in, in your search engine, and it's going to bring all those up. And that's going to really, really help you kind of focus down into the areas that's in your specialty. And then you can later on narrow that down by pay, location. Now, a newest thing since COVID is remote. Uh, that's on there now. Or the other one is job location negotiable. That, that means it might not be remote, but if you're near another facility for the agency you're being hired, you can just go into that facility as needed versus coming on maybe all the way to D.C. So you really want to focus on building your search. And the reason it's important to build your search is you can store multiple different searches and USA jobs. And then you can also set it up where you get notified via email anytime there's a new job that matches your, your categories and your searches. And so you might set up four or five different searches based off of the different things you're interested in. And then you would just get an email of all the new jobs that matches the, that criteria. And, and that's just going to help you in your search process. And so really setting that account up and really figuring out what you want to search for is going to be important. Again, you, you know, you can do by words, you can do it by the series number, but it, it's very important to do a little bit of research to see, hey, I, I think I fit these four or five different categories. I'm going to search for these things. So once, once you, you kind of get that set up and that process set up, you obviously apply for the jobs. And one of the things before we get to that, I want to apply for the job, you have to have a good resume. And I will say cover letter too. The resumes are not like any other resume you, you can imagine. Your maximum pages for a resume is five pages. I mean, so it kind of gives you an idea. You, you have up to five pages to submit for a resume. And it's very important that you look at that job announcement. And again, if you're using the same series, those job announcements become very almost repetitive, but it's very important that you look at that, that job announcement. There's going to be keywords in that job, job announcement. These are things you'll see maybe under the value, how you're going to be evaluated or job description. You want to look at those keywords and make sure that one, you're addressing those key or areas, evaluations and such in your resume uh, in every position that you held. And then you're going to want to include us in those specific keywords. Like I know we all have maybe different words we use for different topics and uh, description of different items. Maybe your agency or our corporate office use a specific type of word. Look at how it's used in that uh, announcement because that's what they're looking for. Match their announcements as much as possible because what happen typically happens is when you're applying for a job, if you know the, the system goes through the process and it's going to look for keywords in your resume. So that's the first thing that's the match is, is this kind of like an AI. It, this, is, this, this is matching the job announcement. And, and so the, the second part of that is that then it gets sent to a person who's supposed to double check, right? Double check you have all your documentation, double check that, you know, you, you, what you, how you answer the questions in your job application process matches your resume. So if you say you're an expert at one subject, which your job 
resume doesn't really show that, then they can go ahead and disqualify you. So that's that's that person's job. And in that area, this is where I'll tell you the cover letter is important. Keep in mind that this person uh, looks at probably thousands and thousands and thousands of resumes every day, and they don't know what this job is. Their job is to pretty much match these things together, and it, they're not specialized in this. They're not an ISS. They're just there to match resumes to the, the job application process. So I, I tell people this, make them make it hard for them to say no. The cover letter becomes very important. And that's where, for me personally, I like to put on one side, you know, how the announcement is saying that you're being evaluated. And then on the other side, how I met that requirement for evaluation. So it's kind of like, uh, again, it's a repetitive to the resume a little bit, but it's kind of dumbed down summary of how I met that evaluation process. And so my, 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 my thought behind that is that when this person gets my resume and my cover letter, Hopefully, I've done their job for them. I make it easy for them to say yes because they're trying to see, did I meet all the evaluation requirements? It's right there. I, I broke it down into a table on my cover letter for them. And then in the resume, as I mentioned, it's five pages. They typically, in corporate resumes, you tend to you know, give them just enough taste to go, I want to know more about this person. In the USA Jobs, you want to give them everything about you on that resume that you can fit in, in there. It's very important that you you kind of expand upon the role, those positions that are focused on the structural systems specialist area. You kind of talk about some of the projects you've done and give some of those details. I like to say action impact result. What action did you take? What impact did it make? And what was the results of that project? And so it's very important that you, you spend the time and you really do justice to your resume because what happens is in that next stage of that process is you're going to apply for a job and USA Jobs is going to then take you to that agency site and that and that site is where you're going to kind of fill in some of the personal questions, answer questions uh, about the job, and then you're going to have to upload all your documents there. And so once that gets submitted, and again, I mentioned it goes through that process to make sure that you're truthful in your resume, how you answer the questions in the application process. And then it goes to a hiring panel or hiring board. Different agencies use different terminologies. But when it gets to that actual agency, the people doing the actual hiring, the people who you'll be interviewing from, they typically set up a matrix. And that matrix is broken down by uh, different aspects of that job. And there's a there's a, there's a percentage given to each of those portions of that matrix. And so there'll be a group of people that will look at your resume and based off that matrix, they're going to grade you. So that matrix is built upon how that job announcement is and what that job is consists of. And so this is where it really comes to, am I getting this interview or not? Because you're going to be given a score and it's going to be based on how well you wrote your resume and how you described your jobs and projects and things like that. And so that's where it becomes very important because if you don't have a good resume, you're not going to get to the interview. We can really, really, really talk about the projects you did. And I've seen so many people that were, they're, they're great. You know, I have people that, that work for me. They're great folks and, and they have experience, but they can never get through that resume process to get the interview. And so that resume becomes very important to make sure you spend that time and, and like I said, address those issues. And then what happens is that when you go through that resume matrix, They'll score you out, and then they'll make a determination on how many people they're going to interview. And then ultimately, they'll take if it say ten people, they're going to take the ten tip top, typically take the ten top folks on that matrix who scored out, and those become 
the folks who get interviewed and get the phone call to, to come in. And, you know, and then from there, it's, it's just like most typical interviews. The, there's typically set up, each agency does it differently, but they pretty much have set questions they're going to ask. A lot, a lot of for ISS is going to be on projects and development, and, and they're going to look to, for you to really, to truly see if you understand the process, that you're not just maybe educated in it, but you can also talk about projects that you, you did that um, shows your experience um, in that. And this is very key because a lot of the folks that will be on your interview will be other ISSs. Typically, for the, uh, my experience, you're going to have folks who have the, the same background and, and and they're looking for those keywords, right? They're looking for the ADI process. They're looking for make sure you understand that process. They're looking for analysis and curriculum development. You know, they were trying to see where you you had the experience in that area uh, to get hired. That, that was long. That was a lot long winded. But anything coming out of that, Robin? That you had questions on? Oh my gosh! So that was that's so clear. It's so step by step. I I think that you said a lot of things that are just people just wouldn't even think about the five page resume. Now, my question and a lot of things that we emphasize when people are applying for corporate and even nonprofit is the portfolio. How much weight does that have in this process? I would say there's a few agencies that probably would ask for a portfolio. i give an example. I mean, different agencies do things differently. I know when we hire instructors, we actually require them to actually instruct us something, like a 10-minute instruction to us to actually see they can instruct. But for ISSs, I would tell you that in my experience, not many, not many portfolios have been submitted. It's typically based off of the resume. And then maybe when they call around to your references and they'll talk about some of the projects you worked on. But most of it, most time I do not see a portfolio. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen. I, like I said, each agency is different. And I think I remember a couple of jobs that I have some friends that applied for that said they required a portfolio, but it, it's, it, it's not always a, a requirement every single time. So it's more about the experience that you have. Correct. More about experience and be able to project your projects, you know, in a professional and clear understanding way. So it almost seems like if you are wanting to transition into instructional design and you're interested in government ISS work, then you should probably get some experience somewhere else before you apply to the government jobs. Is that what I'm understanding? I I would say yeah, Robin, I would say so. I think obviously that they're looking for the, just like anybody, they're looking for the best. They want a lot of experienced people. I mean, in our, our area at my TSA Academy, we have five instructional system specialists, you know, and that's five, some places seems like a lot, but for us, it's for how many training courses that we oversee, it's not a lot. And so you want somebody who can come in and really be a self-starter to understand the material and just kind of move forward with projects. So that, that's important. But I also will tell you, that this is a great time to get into the federal government as an ISS. I don't know exactly what has been driving this, but it seems to be, I'm seeing more and more postings of these positions. And I don't think these are just positions that are just, just becoming vacant. I think there are positions that, uh, I think a lot of agencies are understanding, starting to learn and understand what ISSs do or the instructional systems specialists do. And they're seeking that, you know, I know, for us, we've converted some positions to those ISS positions to try to get more on board. And let's face it, there's just not a lot of people in this community still. It's not all well known. And one of the challenges you do have for the federal government side is they do require at least a bachelor's degree with a certain amount of credit hours and instructional systems or uh, our education type stuff. So there, there's that limits from the candidates applying. And so 
But this is a great time to fly. I would tell you the process because it does take so long. If somebody's really looking for a job, you know, they're, they're going to obviously pepper the different places with all the different resumes they have. And if someone's really looking for a job and they need it right now, first, you know, they're going to take that job. Well, the federal government's not fast. It, it is a slow process. And I can talk about that process, but it's not a slow process. It can sometimes take two months to three months, sometimes even longer um, based off the clearance. But it, it can be a couple month process just to get on, uh, hired and, and, and brought on board. So it's, it can be a lengthy process. And so let's say, example, you have five good applicants out of 10 from this interview board and they start and they finally start calling those five people. The top person gets called and that person is, they've already accepted a job. They're going to go to number two person. And this is what's happened to, with, with us in, a, in the past. They go to number two person and that person's overseas and they need somebody to start quicker than that person in reports. So they go to number three, they hire number three and number three takes the job. And then all of a sudden we get permission to, transfer another position or, or change another position to another ISS, they, they might not re-solicit for a whole new candidate pool. They just went to number four on that, that list. And so number four gets the job offer. And then, oh, well, that person's already got a job. And guess what? Number five got the job. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's, it's, an, it's, it's right now a great opportunity. And I would even tell you, because of what I've seen, if you are a new college grad that has an education in that background, and maybe I've, I know a lot of great teachers that have made that transfer over, obviously they have education experience, they have projects they worked on. I, I would tell you, apply. I mean, I, I, I tell my daughter this all the time. It's always no unless you ask. And it's always no unless you apply. And so you would get a lot of experience just going through the process, through the interviews, kind of build you up. Maybe, maybe you, you know, one interview you felt you were prepared, but maybe you found out the questions they asked, you weren't 100% prepared. And now the second time you can prepare even better. So I would tell people, even new folks into the program, if you match the criteria, apply because you never know, you know, they might use that same list to hire multiple positions, or it could be the process takes a few months, sometimes longer, and everybody says no, or they turn the job down and you're number five and you're ready to go. So uh, that was actually going to be my next question is like, what about teachers? But it sounds like you already answered it so that they they are seen favorably because they have the degrees. And so their transferable skills from creating curriculum for K through 12 is valued in these ISS roles. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I would tell you that it's going to they might find the challenge in expanding themselves outside of that, the, the K through 12 type of thing. But I will tell you that, you know, if you had the formal education or the you had training in some sense, like through the tech school that you mentioned, I think that you're going to transition. You just got to open your mind to it. Like you mentioned, we're, we're, we're typically not subject matter experts on the, the curriculum we're developing on the analysis that we're doing. You have to be willing to ask those questions and speak and read. So I, I feel teachers will, would do a great job of, uh, at some of these positions. Oh my gosh, this is this has been so encouraging, so informative, Ron. And so uh, my favorite question to ask to wrap it up is, what is your best and final advice for those who want to become an idol? So, you know, my biggest thing is you have that desire to, to help with education training. Uh, you know, you might not be the person doing it, but you're building the material. You know, having that love to develop people, I, I think that's that's important. And you have to remember that because no matter what job you have, 
you're always going to face a challenge where you have to remember why you took this job. And so that that's one. The other second to it is do your research. I mean, there's this this community is such a vast community and whether it be corporate, volunteer work, federal jobs, contracting jobs, there are just so many opportunities out there that I think some people get fearful that I'm not qualified, that it's just going to be the door's going to be closed on me. Apply. Start that process. You might not get it the first time. You might not get it the second or third or fourth time, but you're going to learn the lessons as you go through that process and you're going to become a better interviewer. You're going to become a better resume writer. You're going to be better at networking through that process. And I really, really encourage everybody to just push through and do the research and, and put your neck out there. Take the chance. Oh my gosh, that's golden. Ron, thank you so much for your service. And especially thank you so much for coming and sharing with us today on the Become an Idol podcast. I really, really appreciate you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. You can find the show notes for this episode at idlecourses.com. If you like this podcast and you want to become an instructional designer and online learning developer, join me in the Idle Courses Academy where you'll learn to build all the assets you need to land your first instructional design job, early access to this podcast, tutorials for how to use the e-learning authoring tools, templates for everything course building, and paid instructional design experience opportunities. Go to idlecourses.com forward slash academy and enroll or get on the wait list. Now get out there and build transcendent courses.